Thank awesome. you, Brian. Thank you. Well, thank you. That's very gracious. I haven't even said anything yet, so uh, that's very nice. Thanks a bunch. Brian did ask me to tell a little bit of my story, and I thought, well, I could do the whole chronological thing, but you know I turned 50 this year, and there's only so much time. So it's like, well, got to kind of cut it back a little bit. But we'll be out of here before 3, I promise you that, as, uh, as long as that goes. Now, it is 10.20, and I really need to go till about, give me the final time. Just give me the time you... 2.50. No, that's not going to happen. Well, we will make this, uh, we'll keep it within a reasonable boundary today. And the idea that Brian came up with, and actually he kind of started this on, at Iron Hour on Wednesday. Men, if you have a chance, which you do, just get out of bed, come on over here. And this is not just for any age group. Anybody can come. If you're a male, you're welcome to Iron Hour. And uh, ladies, you have your own version that meets on Thursdays, but we have ours on Wednesday mornings. And free warm breakfast right over there, so come on Wednesday mornings. So bring friends, whatever you can. We have some great times, conversations. It's one of the wonderful things about this church that we have missed. As I went to Denver and was in the Front Range for a while, we were in California. We never could find an iron hour. They are very rare. So take advantage, guys. Come on out. Wednesday, Brian started talking about some ideas of... Hey, there's some things we can be thankful for, some milestones, some key elements that happen in our life. And that idea stuck with me. You know, the idea of a milestone, which is a marker somewhere along that says, Hey, you're making some progress and you're still on the path. If you've climbed a 14er, you know people stack the little cairns and you know, oh, good, I guess, because sometimes you get out in that open screen and it's like, I have no idea where the path is. Oh, there's a cairn up there. I guess we go to that point. Milestones help us. Now, there have been some stacks of stones that have built very famously by people through history. Give me some. Talk to me right now. What are some famous stacks of stones? Stonehenge, thank you very much. We're coming back to Joshua. We'll revisit that one in a minute. Stonehenge was actually a really critical, very old, maybe 3,000 years before Christ. The heaviest stones at the base of that thing, no, excuse me, the top stones were actually carried from 240 miles away. They still don't really know how they got them there. They were stacked. They are the exact prime reference, 1.414 is the math equation when everything is in perfect alignment. And they did that mathematically. It's astronomically correct. It's an astounding thing. We still don't know how it happened. Easter Island, I heard somebody say, right, Brooke? Nice job. Easter Island, I hadn't thought of that one. But yes, these huge carved heads, they think they were family representations, might have been who knows what. But just these massive things with a ton of hours of work and the whole history and most of the story has been completely lost on those. Amazing. What other stacks of stones are there? The Tower of Babel. Well, yeah, that one is, was a, uh, a very important one that went away. We don't know what happened to that one, but that was surely an idea. We can stack stones, get to heaven. Anything else? Egyptian pyramids. That's a pretty significant one. Somebody decided they were that important. Right? I mean, stop and think about that. That's an awful lot of work just for a, a stick a dead guy in the ground, right? Amazing stacks of stones. First service, some people were reminded of the Great Wall, an astounding thing that can be seen from space. I mean, the, the pictures, photographs from space can actually pick up the Great Wall of China. And there's a story. Turn to Joshua chapter 4. If you have a Bible, bring it out. 
you should bring it with you because we want you to be able to dig around in there, make some notes at times. Or you can grab the one out of the pew in front of you, the chair there in front of you. Joshua chapter 4, it's in the Old Testament. We're going to read, that was mentioned very early here, that uh, in Joshua there's a story of a stack of stones. All the way back here. Deuteronomy, Joshua, right before Judges. Chapter 4. And of course, I've gained some things since I left here three years ago, and I've lost some things. One of the things I've lost is my eyesight, so I now have to use these glasses. So that maybe make you, will make you feel better or much older. I'm sorry, I don't know. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1, says this. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan... Now, what is going on here? Well, that sets us up. We've got to figure out what's going on. Well, they have wandered around from Egypt. They saw those huge stacks of stones in Egypt, along with amazing other things that the Egyptians did with stone. And they had now journeyed for 40 years. They're ready to go into their land, and they're ready to cross over. And Joshua says over in chapter 3, I love this verse. He says, hey, people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Tomorrow, God's going to do something amazing. Isn't that awesome? What, what great hope and promise. And the story is building here. The story is building. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, still in chapter 4-1, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you'll stay tonight. A stack of stones. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, and he gave them their instructions. And here he says in verse 6, These will serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask, What do these stones mean? Why is there this stack of stones here? You will tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial for the people forever. And later the writer says those things were still stacked whenever the writer wrote this. A stack of stones to say, hey, this happened. And ladies and gentlemen, I have a story. And you have a story. I don't know if you've realized that the Scripture is presented to us. 50% of the Scripture is written in narrative form. Just stories. It's not instructional. It's not the 12 successful methods of blah, blah, blah. It is story after story for hundreds and thousands of years. Real life. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, why? What in the world was going on there? Why would God give us a book that's a bunch of stories? What was happening? Well, I think the critical element of it is, is this. Theology, understanding of God, knowing God and approaching God, is set for us as humans in the setting of messy lives. Theology is set in messy lives. Now, I don't know how about your life. Your life has probably been perfect. I, I know Ron Bristol, your life has been perfect from start to end, right? Ron Bristol, perfect in every way, which is great. So if you want to come up and shake Ron Bristol's hand later, you can. Perfect in every way, the life of perfection. Come on, life is messy. It's messy. And God, thankfully, gratefully, graciously, presented himself to us in the lives of very messy people. 
He didn't polish it all up, clean it up, say this is perfect, some standard you can't get to. There's just stories of real people, narratives that play out. Joshua 4 tells us that. Now, I came up, if you know me from the past, if you were here in the past, I'm the prop guy, okay? Somebody, I think it was Joyce came in this morning, and she's like, Are you, gonna, you must be speaking because there's props up there. Yes, it's me, and yes, I have my props. I like to do something visual because it's a reminder. So I thought about these stones, and I thought, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of just chronologically walking through, I'm going to tell you some of the bits and stories of my life using these stones as reference points. I've got some things over here that all of us would celebrate Many of us would say these are celebratory. I've got some things over here that were put to death in my life. I hope that makes you wonder a little bit. What does he mean by that, put to death? I'm going to explain that here in a bit. There's some things as we're walking along I want you to think about. Stories are told to us. The scripture is set up in stories for a few key points. One is this, mnemonics. Now, that's just a fun word to say. M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C-S. What does mnemonics mean? Anybody know? Really? I stumped the crowd? Yes, it's a memory tool. If you've seen people, there's shows on television, if you've seen people who memorize astounding and amazing things, it's like, oh, wait, what was that guy? I can't remember. No, no. Is there tools, ways, hooks, hooks to memorize? Remember, folks, the the story of the Scripture was passed for generations purely verbally. That was it. It was just told. And then as time went on, they wanted to be sure that people could tell it. So there's hooks, places where we can hang on to and remember. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but we can get confused in the story, right? I mean, my brain has gotten leakier as time has gone on, and I get a little confused in the details. There's a story about, in fact, uh, uh, some children who are in Sunday school, and it's coming up to Christmas time. The Sunday school teacher says, okay, take some crayons and draw a nice picture of a memory, something you remember about the story of Christmas. So it was kind of the standard things of the star and the, the camels and whatever else. And one boy drew a plane with four people in it, three in the back and one up at the front. And the teacher is obviously intrigued, but what is this airplane in the Christmas story? And uh, she says to him, so what does this represent? And he says, oh, that's the flight to Egypt. (laughs) Oh, the flight to Egypt, I see, because, you know, they had to leave and go to run away from the king. But she's still looking at the characters. She's telling me who these people are. Well, that's Joseph, and that's Mary, and that's baby Jesus. Well, who's this person up in the front? Well, that's the pilot, Pontius the pilot. (laughs) Okay, he's a little confused in the details, right? He doesn't quite remember the story. But, you know, we need these hooks to where we can go, all right, I can kind of remember what happened. What was God doing? What was God doing? Because Scripture, again, presents itself to us in that way. And I have these stones, and I have things written on these stones. So I can remember, but hopefully you will as well. This may be the first and most important stone that came. I was a pretty young man, and the gospel was brought to me. And I have written on here, you might be able to see it from back there, Sadie's Oldsmobile. Now what in the world does that have to do with the gospel? I'm going to tell you. My mom was divorced. My dad left my life quite early. And she has two kids. This is back in the 70s when it wasn't 
cool to be a single mom. Not that it was ever really that cool. But a tough time to be raising kids alone. She's at work, not really engaged with the gospel. We have a great heritage of scripture and gospel and truth. But my mom was away from God at that point in time. And so she met a lady that she worked with, sat across the desk from her. And her name was Sadie. And she just watched her for a while. And my mom realized this lady has something going on, something figured out. Her family, her kids, she's got something happening. So mom asked her, you know, I'm just looking for someplace. You got any ideas? Maybe a church or, I don't know, a club? What do you got? And Sadie said to her, I think a church would be great for you. Now, in retrospect, as an adult, I look at this, and I'm just amazed that she did this. They went to church about 15 miles away from where we lived as a family. And Sadie did the math and realized this single mom with these two kids highly unlikely that she's going to be able to make it on a regular basis that far away to church. So she researched and found a church very close to us that was a gospel-teaching church. And I tell you, Sadie's Oldsmobile, because I can still remember, she not only invited us to go to church, she came and took us to church. I can still see that white Oldsmobile sitting out in front of our little apartment. She would ramble up on Sunday mornings, usually with a bag of groceries. And we would pile out and get in the car. She would take us to another church. And I have no idea how long that happened, but long enough that that memory is still very clearly burned into my mind. Sadie coming and getting these ragamuffins and taking them to church. At that church, Grace Baptist Church, I heard the gospel. I heard it preached clearly. And as a nine-year-old kid, I struggled with it. I'm like, what in the world? I don't know. I'm a pretty bad guy. You know, how, many, how bad is a nine-year-old kid? I don't know. But to me, I felt like I wasn't qualified. I still remember working through this and realizing that it was some kind of a surrender for me to give up and to trust God with this idea of salvation. I mean, as a nine-year-old, I processed that. And it was one of those churches where they played 59 versions of, you know, come as you are or just as I am or whatever it was and had to stand up. And I stood there and clutched that pew for weeks as a nine-year-old kid, resisting, and finally gave in. It was a key watershed moment for me. And I don't know, I hope this is a chance for you If you have never responded, maybe you're still in the place. You're just wondering, what is this gospel thing about? What does that even mean? Who was Christ and what does it even matter to anybody? Maybe you're saying, yeah, I'm in a ways, but I'm not sure. I would suggest you keep, keep asking those questions. Don't give up on that. Keep pursuing. And eventually, I would really suggest to you, surrender to Christ. Do that. Receive what he has to offer to you as a gift. It changed my life. It was a critical watershed moment. From then, everything before that, there was one worldview. Everything since that has been based on another worldview because the gospel has defined some things. Now, I'm going to tell you another thing. Some things that were in the process of my life that I put to death. I'll give you an example. One is this right here, self-centeredness. Now, if you know me, you know I'm still pretty self-centered. Okay, in reality, and so are all of us, even with all of these concepts of our life. However, Paul talks about this putting to death process, and he knew it didn't go away. All you have to do is read Romans 7, and you know that Paul knew there's an ongoing battle with this. 
But there's a point in time in life, folks, where you're challenged with key things about you where you can no longer say, this is okay that I'm like that. At some point in time, with key parts of your makeup as a natural man or woman, you have to say, this is unacceptable for me to live my life and have that be part of my life as an acceptable that's just okay with me. And self-centeredness. I remember when I was a young man, I wrote right on here, the Spencer what event. My, my two boys, Spencer's 24, lives in Denver, Elliot's 21. And when they were young, Spencer was a very active young man and a very vocal young man. So everywhere he went, it was very, everybody knew where Spencer was. And that's just how it was. It was okay. But sometimes that would kind of get to me. And I was sitting in a comfortable chair one Sunday afternoon, and I was watching the television. I was not a pastor in a church at a time, but that doesn't really matter because I was still on this journey. Stories were building. And I was watching the television, and he's over here. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. You know the thing, right? Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. And I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I'm like, what? I still remember turning around, and I was just furious, right? And my goal, of course, was to get him to shut up, right? And he did. I still can see visibly he just shrunk, literally just went like physically. And he walked out of the room. And I remember the feeling because it's like, what did I just do to my own kid? What am I doing? That is not okay. This self-centered, it's all about me watching my football game, is not okay. And I started a process where I was, I was just like, I've got to learn some scripture, memorize some things. I told some guys in a small group, I started reading, and I started praying and saying to God, I will take my part of this, and I will adjust my will But God, you supernaturally have to change something inside of me to where that's not the knee-jerk reaction for me anymore. Where I do not just automatically kick off like that when I want to get this irritation out of my life. And I started praying and I started asking. And I remember the day, it was, this was in the football season, and the next summer, it was a while, the next summer, I remember when the light went off again for me, and I was sitting out on the porch with some friends and talking. And Spencer came running around the corner. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. And I was just like, what's up, buddy? And just brought him over and talked to him a second. And, you know, that was all he needed was two seconds. And he was gone again. And it was just like it dawned on me. What did I just do? Instead of reacting with sin and with self-centeredness, I reacted to my son out of love and patience and kindness and all the things that are fruits of the Spirit. And way to go, God. Way to go, God. And those stories, those memories, things that hopefully you can put them together as well. Some key things for me. You you and I share this in common. We have this common ground. Family. This is my family. I've had some wonderful things in my family, my story. My heritage, this is another thing. My great-grandfather emigrated from Sweden to come over to this country to preach the gospel. And my grandfather was a great man of faith. 
And no matter where we were along the journey, they loved us. They prayed for us. They left us a heritage. I know there's other things that I've had to put to death. Um, uncon- the ability to comfort people. I didn't, was not very good at that. And I had a, a very critical moment where I had to decide, that's not okay. I've got to learn how to comfort the stories that build us up. The second thing, first thing I think God gives us these four is to hook the memories, and it builds, and it grows. It goes along. Have you realized the fact that we as people, we're actually called remembering ones in the Old Testament, that some of the Hebrew means that, because we have this incredible ability. Stop and think with me. You go back decades, events that happen in your life, they still affect you today. Sometimes we don't even know it, but something will draw this up, and wow, the power of that comes back, right? Because we have these memories. It's a wonderful thing, though, God is trying to do to build stories. So first, the hooks of memory. The second thing is, there's hope in the sense of common ground. Real life is sloppy and messy, and we have this together. It's common ground. We're not like, uh, I can't relate to you. Of course I can relate to you. Maybe I don't have the exact same pieces, but a lot of these things hook for us. Humor even is one of those things. That ability that we have. Why do you laugh? You laugh because you can relate to that. That's kind of, right? So this last week, my youngest son, Elliot, told me this story. He's a pizza delivery guy. Right? He's down in Denver. That's what he does. He's, he makes pizzas and he takes them and delivers them. So he kind of uses himself as a bit of a dog whisperer. He usually is good with dogs, you know. He walks into houses and people say, oh, my dog's all mean. And he'll go, hey, buddy. And they, you know, so it's like it's a good thing for him. But this one time, he approaches the door. And just envision this. He's got the three pizzas in this hand, right? He's got the money in this hand and the stuff that's ready to go and his cell phone and whatever else. It's here. Now, I've always wondered why, you know, the sagging pants thing where everybody, all the boys have their pants down here, all right? I've never really found a redeeming value till this story for having sagging pants. So my son has his pants down. He's a skater. That's what they do. Got his pants down, walks up to the door, knocks on the door, bang, 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 pizza in this hand, money in this hand. He hears, yep, 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 yep. There's a dog inside. No big deal. The guy opens the door and he's like, Muffy, quit it, whatever it is. As he turns around, the dog runs between the guy's legs, comes out, jumps, chomp, grabs right on the pants right there. Chomp. He's got a hold. So here's Elliot, pizzas. Bad dog, bad dog, bad. What do you do? What do you do? The reason we laugh at that is because you've been stuck in those spots where like, what in the world am I supposed to do, right? What do I do? And these memories, these stories help us. They give us common ground, a sense of, hey, we've got this together. Some things that I can tell you, I hope you have this in common with me. Scripture has been a wonderful, critical piece in my life. A very important thing. From early days, how many of you have gone to or are currently attending an Awana program? Yay, a bunch of people in this. That's awesome. There's a great program of Awana over at RMBC. I will promise you this. In preparation to be a pastor and to go to Bible college, Awana helped me more than anything else I did, including high school. It was a wonderful thing. Wonderful. I memorized scripture. I learned it. It started to soak into me the thoughts, the immediate place my mind goes when I'm trying to figure out a problem or an issue, I immediately go to scripture. 
It's there. It's deep for me. I memorized it mostly in the King James, and I still pull it up in the King James, even though I teach in NIV. But that's not the point. The point is those truths are there. They're deep. And then I got to go to a Christian school. I got to go to a Christian college, a Bible college. And I got to learn how to apply Scripture and hear it and really understand it and think through it. And I hope you and I have that in common. If you don't have that in common with me, you can start today. Build that stone. That can start building. doesn't matter when it starts in your life. It can start building, and it can go for the rest of your life. I guarantee you, if you look through my Bible that is now 20 years old, I got it for my 30th birthday, there's all kinds of stuff in here. But every time I go through, another aha happens. Oh, how did I not see that before? Scripture. Another thing that happened for me that I can remember as a key element I was abandoned. I brought that up a few minutes ago. My dad left. My birth father left 35-plus years ago. I've never seen or heard from him ever again. And one day, just in a way of kind of dealing with it, I wrote a letter to my father. I can still remember when I did it. I was sitting down in the, surprisingly, in the parking lot of Sunshine Cafe. Right? That doesn't surprise you if you know me because I'm down there all the time. But I was sitting out there in that parking lot, and I started writing this letter to my father. And just after the, and and I knew he would never read it, but it was just this process. Just after the beginning of that, it was like the feeling and the the sense of abandonment was really real. And I started writing things that I wish he knew, moments that he missed. And, you know, I wasn't, I've really not tried to be overly angry or bitter towards him because I don't feel like he really wanted to abandon But something happened in there. It was a critical juncture, and he never came back. And he missed my wonderful wife. He missed me, my boys. He missed my life, my sister's life. And it just was that sense of, oh, my goodness. And the power of that was incredible to me. But it started me on a journey. It was one of those days where I kind of put it to death. It's like, yes, have I been abandoned? Was I abandoned? You bet. But do I have to live my life with a sense of, constant hearkening to that or bitterness or anger or no i do not i can move away from that um i remember when i put away the sense of inadequacy it was a gosh this is an ongoing thing but i had just this last year i had one of the moms that we served that said to me you know the way that you and jenny are doing this with us that's the way every pastor in the world should be with their people and i thought wow somehow god has given us the ability to pastor, to engage with people, to love on them, to walk through with really tough, sloppy stuff. And that's good. And I remember the time when trust became really real to me. Now you'd say, well, didn't you trust before that? Yes, I did. But this was a very poignant moment. I was driving. There was a storm in central Indiana and there were tornadoes on the ground and it was right in a path where my house was. And I thought, well, they're out in the middle of nowhere. I was 20 miles away. I'm driving up there. I was afraid. And I just, this sense kind of washed over me like, you can trust God. Regardless, it wasn't a sense of, oh, nobody will get hurt. Nothing will happen bad. It wasn't that. It was, you can trust God. And there's a difference. And I remember that. It was a significant moment for me. A stone that I still go back to. 
And the third thing that I think in this, first of all, there's these hooks that we grab onto. There's common ground that we can all relate to. And then the last thing I think that's so critical is that God becomes the hero in the stories for us if we will let him. Maybe one of the critical elements. If you've ever wondered about worship, what does worship really mean? Is it standing and singing songs? Is it reading scripture? What is it? Maybe the critical piece of worship is acknowledging God in the process. Even if the process stinks. Acknowledging God is here. He has something going on. I can believe and trust. And what does God really have for us in this? That may be the critical element of worship. God is the hero. I remember worship is one of the key rocks for me. Worship has been a critical thing to get deep in. God gave me some gifts and abilities with music that I'm very grateful for. And so that as one of the elements has been important for me, but many others have moved me. I wrote on here, Benny and the drum. If you know who Benny Burnett is, I'm actually blessed to be able to uh, do her wedding this summer. She's out at school at Azusa Pacific. I remember the day I was standing here playing my guitar, and I turned around and I saw Benny right there sitting there playing a drum. Some of you can still see this too. And that smile was here to here. There was something marvelous about watching a young person engage and just smile and bask in the glow of God and the glory. I will never forget that. Worship is a critical thing. A thing that says to us, God is our hero. Missions, I I have right on here. I will never forget the moment when I sat and watched was we're building a house in Mexico. John Green was with a middle school girl. And we had the, the chop saw set up, you know, to cut the two by fours. And here's John Green you know John Green. And then here's this middle school girl, and he's teaching her how to hold the thing up against the fence, get the blade running, bring it down in. And I'm like, it just like it all lined up for me. It's like, this is what this is about. This connection between generations, this opportunity for people of different ages and different stages in life to connect with a common ground of building a house for a family that could not in a million years put the money together to build this house. And we're doing this, and here's John Green teaching this middle school girl how to run a saw. It's just like it all lit up for me. These moments where God's the hero, my speech teacher in college, uh, the different times that things happened, my time that I had a a serious battle with adultery, and didn't give in. Actually battled it. Other stories. Greed, the time when I met the pastor with one shirt in Guatemala. One shirt. And he was very, very happy to have that shirt. The time that Brian Post and I had a long conversation about legalism. And he said to me, Mark, would you rather have justice or would you rather have mercy so i don't know how your life is planned out but i'll say this to you i'm very happy jenny and i she's not here this service she was sitting right over there so i'm kind of pointing over there but she was very happy we're so glad we don't feel like the story ended when we left here we don't feel like that was the last chapter and the amazing thing that god would let us kind of 
boomerang back in here. I don't know, somebody referred to me as the retreaded pastor this week. I think that's probably accurate. But the ability to come back in here and engage with you, and let's keep writing the story of Dillon Community Church. If you don't know it, come and talk to me. Find Gail Ingalls, find Jude, find somebody who knows the story. Ron Bernard, sit him down, talk to him, find out about the story of this amazing church and how the gospel has affected Summit County. And let's keep writing stories. Let's do this in the, in the context of families. And let's do this together in such a way that we can pile up rocks like Joshua had them pile up. And we can say, not us, but God. And look what God did. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. The stories, so many more, so many pieces that couldn't even possibly be left out. But I look forward to telling more of my stories and God hearing people's stories. Um, Tough times, marvelous times, miracles, um, unbelievable, questionable things that we can never figure out. God, in the context of messy life, Help us find you. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for the moments that we can go and stack up the rocks. These are way more meaningful in some ways than those crazy rocks and stone hands or in that pyramid. Thank you for the real life stories. And thank you that you gave us these instructions in the context of the narratives of Scripture so that we can say, wow, that's real. It's honest. And give us courage and hope as we move forward to work together and build stories, identify them, and see you in them. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.